Please stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter four twelve through nineteen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you this morning. I will confess up front, I am tired, uh, but it is a good tired. It is a good tired, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be here with you and for all the work we've gotten to do with the college students in the last week uh, that have made me tired. So thank you for your prayers, and thank you for, for being here with us. This morning, we're going to jump in this passage I'm excited about. I want to I start with a story, though. And a handful of years back, a few friends of mine and I were hanging out one evening, and I don't even remember what we were doing, but we wound up, uh, we found ourselves in the drive through at a McDonald's. And as we're in line at this McDonald's drive through uh, a man uh, comes up to the window of the vehicle and knocks on the window, and we roll it down and speak to the man, and he says, pardon me, can you spare a quarter? And I start to reach and look to see if I have any change, try to talk to the man for a moment. But before I can do anything, another friend in the car looks at him straight in the face and says, oh, sure, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R. And the man looked at us perplexed, just absolutely confused by the situation, as did everyone else in the car. And we thought, what is he doing? And, and our friend was just so happy and like, yep, there you go. And the man walked away so confused. I've never seen someone just so confused by a situation. And finally, we looked at our friend and said, hey, man, what did you think he said? And he said, yeah, he asked if we could spell quarter. Yeah, it's easy, right? I was like, that's not what he said, man. Yes, if you could spare a quarter. Why would a random dude want to know if you could spell the word quarter? And so obviously we laughed for a good long time about this and still give this friend a hard time today. I won't say his name. But um, for those of you that know that we're there that day, please don't out him without, without his permission. So we, we had a good laugh. But there's two things I think we can learn from this story that will help us today. Why did I share this story? Well, two things I want us to see. That one, listening is very important. 
And today we have a word from God that is not an easy word, but it's a word we need to listen to. And that leads to the second thing, that our expectations are very important. And sometimes we need God to reframe our expectations of what is true and what we see about the world. See, I don't think the man was confused because of my friend's answer was wrong. He spelled quarter very well. He did a great job. He was confused and upset because he expected something different and got something totally different than what he was looking for. And I think today a problem we have in our church, in Western modern Christianity especially, is that we have an underlaying, a foundational misunderstanding of truth, an expectation that is opposed to what God has told us, and it leads to a lot of problems in how then we live out our faith. And today, our passage of Scripture is going to speak directly against that. And so, what I want to ask for you to do today as we go into this passage is to, I pray, my prayer going is that you would listen to God and allow Him to reframe your expectations according to His Word. And allow him to move and work in this time. Let me pray for us one more time as we jump in. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you move and work in our lives. And give us the opportunity to know you and to live to make you known. God, I pray you would bless this time. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Hearts and minds to know and believe. And I pray that where there's anything that we find our expectations or our thoughts bump up against your word, that, Lord, we would submit to you, we would humble ourselves before you and allow your word to change and shape us, God. I pray you would make us more into the image of your Son. And I pray what we do here today would glorify you. Thank you so much. Thank you once again, God. Thank you. We love you. We praise you now. We pray all this in your Son's holy and blessed name. Amen. So, as we look at our passage today, I was just thinking coming into this, how, how cool, Chauncey talked about this a little bit last week, I shared at our staff meeting a week or so ago, it's been interesting being in Peter, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Acts, and then also Luke, and I, I just love Luke's writing apparently, and so, but I love what we see here is looking at Peter's writing, and then just stopping and think about all the ways Peter lived this out before he was writing this to other people, Right? And so I say this just today again to help us think uh, as we're going to come and hear this word. We're not getting this from a man who uh, didn't know something about this. No, Peter, as an apostle of God, was someone who lived on both sides of the things we're going to talk about. It's interesting to think about Peter and think about we have a man who denied Jesus three times in his hour of need. And then also was later restored and got to help lead the church. We have a man who often made brash decisions and sometimes said some things that Jesus had to rebuke him for, right? But then later is going to be speaking to other believers and leading and guiding them and say, hey, look, learn from what I've done in the past and hear my words now. I'm telling you because I want you to know Christ more. I'm trying to help you learn. We had a man who walked with Jesus and experienced all the goodness of his friendship and then that later would go on as Tradition tells us to be martyred for his faith, not much longer after he probably wrote this letter. Peter 
understood intimately what it looked like to follow Christ. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And so when he writes these words to us, he writes as a man, God writing through him as someone who understood, who personally experienced what he was talking about. What Peter also understood, and this is one of the reasons I think I love Peter so much, is we see in his writing, Jesus is always held up as the means and the model for the Christian life. Jesus is always held up as the means and the model for the Christian life. So as we go through our passage today, I want that to stay in the back of our minds as well. Jesus is the only reason we can come and talk about these things. He is the means for our salvation, right? It is by Christ's work alone on the cross and through his resurrection. But his life was also the model that exemplified for us what it looks like to follow after God. And so as we come, again, we see Peter lifting up Jesus and saying, let's look to him. And so today in our passage, I want to look at four observations, four observations as we stand out. I think there's a lot we could learn from this, but these are the four things that stood out to me as I was praying over this text. And then we'll look at the end at three things that hopefully it'll move us to do. So four observations from the text and then three things it'll move us to do. Observation number one. And this is the big one. This is the one I've been praying for. I hope we can jump in and understand what the word is saying here. Suffering and trials are not, are not the exception in the Christian life, but they are the norm for followers of Jesus. Do we see it here? Look at verse 12. Beloved, don't you love that word? Man, what a good word. Brother Santos has been encouraging me lately. We've been doing our scripture memory as college students, and he's outpacing me at this point. And he keeps coming back to this word beloved that we got in Jude 1, 20 and 21. Uh, and just how good it is that God calls us his beloved. And so when we get to hear Peter saying this, it's an affectionate term. He's speaking on behalf of God. We are God's beloved. We are beloved in the community together. We are brothers and sisters, family. And so Peter is coming, and what he's about to say is not to knock us down, but to build us up because he loves us. He says, we are beloved in Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You hear what Peter said? Church family, Peter says, my brothers, my sisters, I don't want you to be surprised about the trials, the difficulties, the hardships you're, you're experiencing. Don't act like this is something strange. Why? Because you know if you're following Christ, this is the life. We can look at various ways the scripture tells us, but one that's very clear, Jesus himself said, right? If you think, if they persecuted the master, how much more so are they going to treat the servants, right? Jesus said, blessed are you when you were persecuted for my name's sake. He warned us. He told us over and over. It's for not, not for no reason that he said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross, your instrument of death that I'm going to face for you every day and follow me. Jesus proclaimed it clearly. The apostles came to understand that. It was normative throughout the book of Acts. We could go and look at the stories of the early church and see how our brothers and sisters faced early opposition and persecution. 
And it's not even always the ways we think about it. I was thinking about the story um, of the Temple of Artemis and how they go in and what they're doing is good stuff, but it's leading people to know the Lord and they're stopping. These people are throwing away their idols, right? And it disrupts the money-making business of the town. And the people that made the money got upset by it, right? And so they start throwing Christians out and they look to kick Paul out. And it's the same way we see we could go on and tell other stories as we go throughout church history. We see it um, all throughout the early church. The persecution was rampant early on. It started off as pockets. It wasn't necessarily institutionalized. We often misunderstand and think of Nero as being a guy who implemented persecution for the whole empire, but that actually wasn't the case. It was mostly in Rome and in little pockets, but then later there were a few other emperors that implemented widespread persecution. But really, it continued more in the, in the story like the story of the Temple of Artemis, where it was where believers would live like Christ and so disrupt the culture around them, so look different from the culture around them, that people would say, well, we can't handle it. We don't want any part of this. And in fact, you need to get out of here. They would kick them out. They would be opposed to them. They would speak down of them. They would lose face in society. That was a big deal in honor-shame culture. And this happened all throughout until we see really around the time of Constantine when the church starts to become more of the norm. But even then we can go throughout the the church history and see the story of the martyrs over and over. If you've never read Fox's book of martyrs, I encourage you. It's a tough read, but a good one to go and to be reminded of the cost of following Jesus and what it's looked like. Not the exception, but the norm throughout the ages has been to be a follower of Jesus, suffering and trials are what await us. And in case you think this is just something for Peter's time or something for the beginning of the church, maybe like the Middle Ages, uh, we could look to a lot of different statistics, but one thing, it's a little hard to nail down. You look at a lot of different numbers are tossed about, but one thing that's usually agreed upon is, this is a, a baffling statistic to me. Out of all the martyrs that have happened in the history of the church, In the 20th century alone, around half or a little over half of them took place. Wrestle with that for a moment. We know there's a lot of documentation of early martyrs, and then there are many more we know probably took place that aren't documented, because they were just everyday people following Christ. And that has continued to happen, but what we can gather is see that most likely in the 20th century, there was such rampant persecution from communism and socialistic countries, and, and some of these other areas where Christianity was just tried to be rooted out completely, we can look and say, just in the 20th century alone, more than half of all martyrs took place. And those numbers haven't necessarily lessened. Again, they're hard to pinpoint completely, but they've continued even to this day. So we see... To the point where I think that I was looking at some statistics, Open Doors says that you can, you can gauge hard, uh, hard uh, hardship. I can't remember the exact term, hard persecution, I think they said they use. So this could be to the point of death, imprisonment, loss of property, of family, um, and of having to even like mo- to move. All these things included in this. If you live in Africa, uh, one in six Christians will experience this in their life. If you live in Asia, one in three. Those numbers should shake us. And I think one of the reasons why they should shake us so much is because if we're honest, they seem unfamiliar to us. They seem foreign. 
It seems out there. It's not really our problem, is it? Our persecution looks a lot different if we even have persecution, right? And the problem with this is there's no foreign church and local church. There's no out there church, but we're all one body, one new man in Christ. So if we have brothers and sisters suffering and being persecuted wherever they are, we suffer with them. And we have to learn how to identify with them and how to continue following Jesus as Peter was trying to exhort his brothers and sisters back then. This is the reality around the world. Let me share another story to drive this home in case, in case it's still not hitting there for you. Um, some of you know or have read Nick, Nick Ripkin, a um, man I've had the opportunity to study under a, a couple different times. and um, He's considered probably the, the leading expert on the persecuted church in the world. And in his uh, books, The Insanity of God and Insanity of Obedience, they're just incredible testimonies. He got the chance to travel all around the world and interview believers from all of the most persecuted nations across the world and hear their stories. And a story that has always stuck with me is telling a story one time of being with some, some brothers in Russia, I believe, or at least in the Russia area. And they're telling just these incredible stories of persecution, incredible stories of who went to jail and for how long. And who was beaten for their faith that time? And, oh, no, no, it was this other time I was beaten. And it was just like they were just going back and forth. And Nick said he was there and just could not believe it. And the first day, he listened to it and couldn't get up the courage to say anything. He just sat and listened. But he said day two, he came back, and they kept telling stories like this. Kept telling stories of persecution and of hardship and of trial. And finally, he said, I got the courage. He just mustered up the courage to say something. He said, look. These stories are incredible. People need to hear about this. Why haven't you guys written books about this? Why haven't you put it into publication? Why aren't we like making movies to encourage other believers around the world? And he said they kind of sat there in silence for a while, looking at him. And finally, he said a little bit older man, who seemed like he wasn't afraid to speak up, looked at him and said, Son, do you write a book about the sun rising? Do you make a movie about the sunset? Do you want to tell stories about eating breakfast every day or lunch or dinner? And Nick said he was so convicted because the point was so clear. What they went on to tell him was, we don't make a big deal out of it because it's not the exception. It is the norm of our everyday life. To follow Christ means we will face persecution and trials. And we knew that. We counted the cost. And so we're in. We're following him. What are you guys doing? Our brothers and sisters around the world aren't looking at us so much and saying, man, they're so blessed for their lack of persecution. More often, they're looking at us and saying, we love them. They're our brothers and sisters, but sometimes we wonder what they're really doing over there. Where have they compromised in the gospel? Because clearly, it seems like they're not following Jesus in the same way that we are. The reality is that suffering and trials are the norm for followers of Jesus, not the exception. Jesus made it clear. It was clear in the apostles' lives and the history of the church, and it's still clear throughout the world in the church today. Observation number two. This is an easy one. I followed it after the last one because it was a hard one. Suffering for evil is bad. 
boom, told you it was easy. Okay, this one is Peter's kind of like, uh, come back here for a moment. We look at verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's obvious, right? Especially this first three. If you look at the Greek, the way the first three are listed together, the fourth is listed separately. And this is important. The first three are obvious things. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't genuinely do evil. Yes. Right. Um, and, and Peter's idea here, I think, is helpful. I know I can relate to it. Have you ever, you ever had to experience hardship or trial because of something dumb you did? Yeah, yeah, me too. I thought about lots of stories that came to mind, and then I thought, you know what? I want to remain some respect with you guys. So I'm going to not tell a story and just let you imagine. But yeah, I can, I can relate to that. I have been in a situation where I've experienced difficulty, hardship, trial, whatever, because I made a dumb mistake. And that is not what we're talking about. In fact, that's what Peter directly speaks of. He says, hey, don't suffer for doing evil. Don't suffer for doing bad things. There's no reward in that. There's no blessing in that. It doesn't bring honor to God. It doesn't relate you to Christ anymore. In fact, it gives a bad witness for who God is if you call on the name of Christ. Like I said, these first three are the obvious ones. And I, I thought it was really interesting in one of the commentaries I was reading noted that these would be things that even the Roman authorities would say, yeah, this is bad. And they had punishment within the Roman laws. But the fourth thing he lists here, this word that's often translated as a meddler, um, sometimes translated as um, a perpetrator of evil, um, kind of mixed in with that third one. This word was slightly different. And I thought this was helpful because what Peter is probably saying is here is there's the obvious things we shouldn't suffer for doing evil as right? the things that even those that aren't Christians around you will recognize and say, yeah, that's bad. But then there are lots of things that the culture around you still approves of that you, my brothers and sisters, you remember you left that life and they're calling you back to it. Chauncey talked about that a little bit in last week's sermon, right? We got that in the passage that they've left these things. And there's lots of things that the culture around you will approve. But God does not approve of that is still sin. That is still wrong. And so, remember, don't suffer for those things, too. If you get up all in someone's business when you shouldn't have, and then it brings extra hardship in your life, you're not suffering for Christ. You're just being a busybody and put yourself somewhere you didn't need to be. That's just foolishness, right? So we could go on and think about that. And I think it's a challenge, at least for me, to think about what are the ways... It's the easy, obvious ones that the culture around us also rejects. Yeah, I don't... I haven't really murdered anybody that I know of. That's great. I don't openly steal or try to like go about perpetrating evil on purpose. But what are the ways, the small ways that the culture around me seduces me to still try to be like them that is not Christ-like? What are the ways that you need to consider what Peter is saying here? We don't suffer for doing evil. I had a rule when I was a youth growing up. My youth pastor and then my pastor I got to work with for a little bit was a man named John Hutchinson. Some of you know him. He's a, a good man. And I hope that you don't take away that this was like the only thing I ever remembered from him. There were many great things that he taught us. But one thing that st- stuck with me uh, as I became a youth pastor later was we had this rule that was very simple and it helped me. And it was what I, I don't know. It just kept coming to mind as I was thinking about this, this observation. It was called the idiot rule. Um, and the idiot rule, again, super simple, was this. If you're going to do anything, 
stop and think about it. And if by doing that thing, someone should say, hey, that's stupid. You'd be an idiot for doing that. Don't do it. Real simple. And it was usually used when we like went to camp or something like that. A bunch of, you know, crazy boys running around doing dumb stuff. And, but it was effective. And I, I continued to use that rule for throughout the time I was a youth pastor. And I felt like this was kind of Peter's idiot rule here. Like, look, guys. We're talking about real stuff. I know you're, you're facing real hard stuff. There's real difficulty in your life. You don't need to act a fool and add any more problems to it. Right? We've got enough real problems as it is. So don't be an idiot. Don't suffer for doing evil, for doing bad things. We've got enough to deal with. So that's observation number two. Observation number three. Here we go. This is getting good. Suffering for Christ is an honor that brings the blessing of God's presence. Suffering for Christ is an honor that brings the blessing of God's presence. Let's look to the text, verses 13, 14, and 16. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's a truth here that Peter's starting to point us to, and we're going to see more when we look at the, the, the next observation, and that is we live in the time between the times. Everybody say the already, not yet. And what that means, what we see, what Peter is trying to point us to and what they understood in that time was that they had this idea that the new age, that the kingdom had already begun to break into the world. Right. When Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave, his glorified body, he came back resurrected. And that was the inbreaking of the kingdom into the world, the new age and the old age together. And so now we find ourselves in this time between the times where we are still living in the brokenness of this world, and yet Jesus is glorified and sitting at the right hand of God, and we await his return, where he will judge the living and the dead and make all things new. And so Peter is living in this reality, and he's speaking to the brothers in this reality as they're facing persecution and hardship. He's reminding them, look, don't forget where we are. Don't forget whose you are. Jesus will return. He's returning soon. And for them, the reality was right there. They're sitting in the already and not yet nature, and they're seeing it about them. But what Peter also reminds them, is says, look, Christ suffered. So, of course, we will. Jesus, remember, is our means, but our model also. And if Jesus had to suffer, then, of course, if we're going to follow him, we can expect the same thing. But here's the good news. Right? The good news is that what we see, Peter says, is that we get to participate with Christ in his sufferings so that we may participate with Christ in his glory. Did you catch that? I don't know if you did, because I got, I got a little bit of a reaction over here. And what I just said was something incredible, okay? So we're going to try this again. We get to participate with Christ in his sufferings so that we will participate with Christ in his glory. 
There we go. That's what I'm talking about, right? This is the gospel, the good news. Why do we know that we will suffer? Why do we understand that God would allow suffering? It's because the gospel itself tells us that. Right? What else is the gospel if not that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the one sinless man, the one who was righteous and didn't deserve to die, he went and suffered in our place. He took the weight of our sin. He took our punishment. He died on the cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death so that if we trust him, if we believe in him, we can be restored to God. And be part of the restoration of the rest of the world. We have work to do. And the participation, Peter reminds us and Paul tells us in Philippians, is that we will participate in the sufferings so that we also will participate in the glory. As we walk after Jesus, we will encounter difficult things. Many of you right now, you know that. I'm not preaching a hypothetical to you today. But what we see is that there is a blessing there in participating with Jesus and following his footsteps and in remembering that God is with us. Where do we see that? Well, one, we can think back all the different times Jesus said, right, in the Great Commission. He says, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. He promised it in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He told us all throughout that he was going to be with them and that he'd send a helper and a comforter. And that is what Peter points us to now. What does he say in verse 14? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Brothers and sisters, we have the living God in us if we are in Christ. Holy Spirit rests in us. And when we identify with Christ and participate in his sufferings now, we are already, because we're in the already not yet, we are also currently participating in the glory that we'll know more fully later on. That's the glory. That's the beauty of the already not yet. Jesus, Paul tells us in Ephesians that the Spirit is our guarantee, the down payment of what we will more fully know. And what Peter is saying, what he experienced, what, what we get to see now, and we can look to the testimony of saints throughout the ages, is that when we participate with Christ in his sufferings, we experience even more fully the presence of God with us now. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing. We should want to receive. Now, a, a couple of thoughts, a couple notes. One, uh, we don't seek persecution. We don't seek hardship and trials. We want the blessing of knowing God more. We want the blessing of walking with him. And we are committed to following Jesus. But Jesus does not call us to go seek the trial. He calls us to wisdom. He calls us to follow him. And if trials come upon us, which Peter and Jesus and the others tell us they will, then we are called to be faithful and obedient in them. But we do not seek the trial for itself. Right? We don't seek the hardship or the suffering for the sake of suffering. We also don't have misguided ideas about how suffering always has some type of silver lining. 
just in, in like a physical, real sense, or like a tangible right now sense. Like sometimes we can get caught up in this, well, um, I was talking to a student the other day. This is a good, a, a helpful example for me. And, and the student had this idea, it's almost like a karmic type idea of like, hey, every time something bad happens to me, well, then I know something good's about to happen, right? And I'm like, man, <laughs> look. Praise God if that's the way the Lord works in your life, man. Keep thanking God for the blessings and keep looking for those opportunities. But suffering is not a guarantee that we're going to see something, some blessing immediately right after, right? Walking through the valley does not mean we will see a mountaintop. Eventually, we will be on that mountaintop. We'll dwell there with God. And now we can know that God comes down to the valley with us. That's the blessing of the gospel. But let's not make the mistake of thinking too small about suffering. Lastly, a word on this. This is a long quote, but this was incredibly helpful. And I think it's one we need to hear. I was praying about how to approach this, and I'm glad I came across this quote because it said it better than I ever could. And so now you can be bad at this commentator and not me um, because they said it. So uh, uh, one of the commentaries is reading... And uh, Catherine Gonzalez had this to say about when we think about suffering and we think about participating with Christ in the suffering, it's important to realize what suffering is not, especially in our modern context. And so here's the quote. We need to be clear about the opposition Christians receive. There seem always to be some Christians who take great pride in being treated negatively. They may be very quick to point out the errors of others or to refuse association with those they consider sinful. They may take pleasure in the sins of others because it makes them seem all the better. The hostility they engender may appear to them to be God's approval of their lives, whereas it is really their own judgmental attitude that causes others to reject them. We are not always the best judges of our own actions. It is the community itself that may help such people to see themselves more truly. The opposition they face is not because of the gospel, but because of their own unloving actions and attitudes. The opposition described in this letter is different. It comes because Christians are faithful to the lordship of Christ in a society that does not agree to that lordship. What I want us to hear today is we don't honor God, participate in the blessing of Christ's sufferings, and bring glory to God by being a jerk to other people. Simply put, right? We have to be wise and understanding, especially in this time, especially in the age of social media, where it's so easy to hide behind a screen and say whatever you want. Our enemy is not on the other side of that screen. Our enemy is not the person on the other side of the political aisle. Our enemy is not the one who has a differing view view on you about this thing or that thing. Our enemy is described very clearly from Peter. We're going to get into it in the next chapter. And it's Satan, the evil one. And he wants to undermine the works of God and he wants to drag us down with him. And if we believe those lies and continue to feed into them, By sowing disunity, it takes away from the message of the gospel and brings a witness, a false witness about who God really is and who he's called us to be as the church. 
So when we talk about suffering, there's a reality in the Western church that has been stirring for a while now to act like we have persecution, when in reality it's just us being foolish again. Let's not fall into that trap. Let us be people who if we err, we err on the side of love. If we err, we err on the side of gentleness and humility. Let's follow the words of Paul and say, hey, why would I not rather just be wronged by my brother than drag them before courts and malign the name of Jesus in front of people who don't know him? Let's err on the side of being Christ-like. The suffering will come if we follow Jesus. The trials will come. We don't need to make up any for ourselves. So let us cling to him. And follow after him. Final observation. Verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Reality of the gospel is that there is eternal stakes. There are eternal stakes. The message is urgent. And Peter looks at it here and says, what, what we need to see is remember this already not yet we're living in. The cosmic reality of what we're talking about. And he's not trying to um, advocate or talk about like, some type of works righteousness, like we can earn our salvation or we have to be scared of losing our salvation. But what he's pointing out to is, again, is that there's only one whom we can be saved by. There's only one who has the righteousness, and it's Jesus, right? And what he's, we've seen through these other observations and through this passage is that all will face judgment before God. Even those who follow after Jesus. But what we have to understand is that judgment does not necessarily mean condemnation. Right? We know for those in Christ there's no longer any condemnation in him. And yet we will still stand before him. But if we're in Jesus, it'll be the righteous blood of Christ that covers us. But what Peter says, what Peter says is, think about it, the judgment has already begun. The the trials, the sufferings that we're experiencing now, because we live in the time between the times and that the kingdom has already been inaugurated, these are the trials that are moving us toward the kingdom come. And because of that, we need to think about the urgency of what we're doing here. Because if the judgment begins with us, we know what we have in Christ. We don't have to fear the judgment because we have the righteousness of Jesus to cover us. But what will await for those who do not know Jesus? What is there for those who are apart from Christ? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's question has an implied answer. It's if, if we are only saved by the righteousness of Christ, those outside of that righteousness will not be saved. There is an eternity separated from God that is the reality for all who do not know Jesus. Our lives are not for ourselves. God has tasked us with an urgent message 
And as Paul reminds us, when we come to know him, we no longer live for ourselves, but now we live to make him known. Now we are ambassadors for the one who saved us. Now we get to go plead to the world on behalf of God, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because the days are short. The time is coming. We don't know when Jesus will return. But the kingdom is coming now. God is moving and working now. And he's calling us to follow him no matter the cost. And the message is too urgent not to listen. Three action steps for us to take away. We look at this passage, hopefully three things we see help us to sum up. If you're a note taker like me, this um, comes from commentator Joel Green. It was a helpful summary of what we've looked at. So if we look at this, Peter turns to verse 19 and implies the question, how then should we live? In light of this reality, my brothers and sisters, how should we live? What does he say? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First action step, what do we see? Surprise at suffering should give way to joy. And shame in suffering should give way to glory. Surprise that suffering should give way to joy. Why? Because we rejoice in knowing the reality of whose we are, that we are Christ's, that we were purchased by his blood, and that we have a future that is assured in him, and that we get to participate with him right now in his sufferings, knowing we will participate with him in his glory. And so the surprise, suffering doesn't have to be a surprise, but instead, like Peter says, it can be a joy. We don't naively rejoice in hardship or trials, it's not the difficulty that we rejoice in, but it's in the reality of who God is and his presence with us and the blessing we receive in walking with him in suffering. Our surprise can turn to joy and our shame from suffering can turn to glory. Did you see what Jesus was doing in their lives and what he still wants to do in our lives? The believers would come to know Jesus and would lose face in their society, right? They would, they would suddenly lose prestige and honor because the society would look at them. Like I said, they look different now that they were following Jesus. And what Peter is speaking to me is saying, it is not a shame to follow Jesus. No, it is quite the opposite. It is your honor to follow Jesus, and it brings great glory to God, glory you get to participate in. And today, it's true for us. We still face... Persecution. We still have to worry about what others think about us. I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you I don't worry about what people think about me sometimes. Probably way too much than I need to. But the good news is that I can trust in Jesus and follow him and know it doesn't matter what they think about me. If I'm following Jesus, I know what my God thinks about me. I know my brothers and sisters have my back. I know the testimony of the saints throughout the ages. And so I can endure. I can persevere. I can follow on after Jesus and know what my life is to be about. My shame turns to glory. 
Number two, we need to practice identifying with Christ in his suffering. We get to identify with Christ in his suffering because, again, as we suffer, we know we are following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior who suffered before us. We see that suffering, trial, and opposition open new doors of opportunity to show the love of Christ. And so instead of running from it, instead of fleeing from it, again, we don't search it, but when it comes upon us as we're following Jesus, let's seek to identify with Jesus and ask him, what does he have for us in this moment? Lord, help me to follow you. Help me to faithfully and obediently seek after you. We have the choice to identify with Christ in every hardship, in every situation, which leads to the third Third application here. Spoiler, title, title of the sermon. Trust God and do good. Trust God and do good. In some translations, we could see this translated as trust God by doing good. And I think that is helpful. What Peter says here is, how then do we see God in the midst of suffering? How then do we continue to follow God in the midst of difficulty? How can we be followers of Jesus in situations and circumstances where it seems like it'll cost us everything? And what Peter says is, well, that's exactly the right time to do it. Trust God and trust your whole selves, your whole lives to a faithful creator. This is the only time in the New Testament this Greek word for creator is used. Peter is evoking this idea, reminding us of the image of who God is. He's not just the God of now, but he's the God who created all things and sustains all things. Who holds all things together. He is the one in control of everything. He is sovereign over all. And if we think about all the ways, all the things Peter's already told us, and we think about the testimony of Peter's own life as he's speaking to them, what he's saying is, brothers and sisters, look to me. Look to Jesus and understand we can trust this God. He's faithful. He's never failed us before, and he never will. So trust him. Entrust your souls to him and keep doing good. Keep doing the things that I've told you to do. Keep loving your neighbor. Keep seeking hard conversations and pursuing reconciliation. Keep giving until it hurts. Keep working even when you're tired. Keep seeking after me even when it costs you everything. And trust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to close with another story. Just as I was thinking about this, a way that helped drive this home for me. What does it look like? How do we trust God and do good when everything around us seems to be crashing down? When everything around us wants to keep us from doing that very thing? Peter says we trust God by doing good. And my thought was, well, I don't always feel like doing good. (laughs) I don't always feel like doing good, especially when things are going bad for me. So what then, God? What do you have to say then, Peter? And as I wrestled with the text, I thought of a story that came to mind. Some years ago, I got the chance uh, to go with Stephanie, Greg, and Audrey, and another friend of ours to an awesome amusement park. And then uh, on the way home, we we swung by Chicago for a quick dinner and uh, going up to the top of the Willis Tower. So I've got a picture, a couple pictures here. 
Um, hopefully. And if not, you can just imagine a large tower, a really large building, right? It's really tall. There we go. Yeah, the Willis Tower. Um, super tall. Um, what you may or may not know about me is I am afraid of heights. Not a big fan at all. And at the top of the Willis Tower, there's this thing. You can go to the next picture. It is the glass observation deck. That is it. It is awful. I hate it. Um, you're standing in this glass box over the city, and you see everything. You can go to the next picture. This is a downward view. I know it's pixelated, but you can just see. That's like other buildings, the tops of other buildings that you're way, way above. It is terrifying, right? Okay, so um, we go, and of course, um, they all want to go in this box of death, and I wanted nothing to do with it, but Greg is my, my closest friend. I trust Greg. Greg is a good man, a faithful man of God. If you don't know him, uh, you should get to know him. He's awesome. And so I trust Greg, and so I agree. Um, I, go, I go on. You can go to the next picture. What I want you to see is see the smiles on everyone else's face, and then look at my face. That is not the face of a man who wanted to go in that glass box. That is the face of man who is experiencing great fear. And at that moment, I will be honest with you, Greg started jumping up and down in that box, and I no longer wanted to trust Greg. I had no feelings of admiration for Greg anymore, nor I usually walk around on floors, and I trust them, no problem. That floor, didn't trust it anymore, right? There was no feeling of trust there is no feeling of admiration. There's nothing I wanted to do. You can take my ugly mug off now if you want. Thanks. I didn't feel it in that moment. But what did trust look like in that moment? It looked like getting in the box. It looked like stepping in the box. And in the moment when trials come upon you, when hardships come upon you, when difficulty is upon you, what does it look like to entrust your soul to a faithful creator? Keep doing good. Step into the box. Keep doing the good that God has called us to. He is worth it, my friends. He is worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us into this great work of knowing you and making you known. God, I pray you would help us to love you more. I pray if there's any here today that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that, Lord, you would soften hearts to hear the great love you have for us in and through Jesus to come to know you. And God, for those of us here today that are following you, I pray we would hear the words of Peter and we would take them seriously and that, God, we would desire to know you more, to follow you no matter the circumstance or situation, to trust you, God, and keep doing the good work you've called us to. You are faithful and good. I thank you that you've made good works for us to walk in beforehand, that now we can trust you and keep following after you. I'm thankful for these brothers and sisters I get to do that with, and I pray you would bless them to know you more and to live to make you known in these coming days. Thank you once again, Lord. We praise you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.